Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, I bring to the show Dr. Naveen Muthu, who is a pediatric hospitalist informaticist from CHOP. That's the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's really smart with informatics. He went through an informatics fellowship, which I'm all excited to ask him about. Naveen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to catch up after our last conversation. Yeah, this will be fun. I am a delinquent. I've been behind on my podcasting because of this little virus thing that moved into (laughs) town. On the eastern shore of Maryland, we are just in our upswing now, and we converted conference rooms into ICU beds and things like that, and there's all kinds of uh, training and IT stuff that's been going on. So it's been very exciting where I am. How about, first let's talk about where you are, what you're doing, give us, and how you got there. Tell us a little bit about you first. Sure. Yeah. I imagine your podcast listeners will forgive you for the week. Yeah. So I think it's actually not that uncommon in the clinical informatics world that we sort of had a general idea of where we wanted to go and then kind of stumbled our way there. So I'm kind of the same. I did actually, the first time that I had an inclination that I'd want to do anything like this is I actually did a Doris Duke Clinical Research Fellowship in the middle of medical school between my third and fourth year and was really focused on studying medical decision-making, and at the time was really focused on how emergency rooms communicate diagnoses of non-cardiac chest pain to their patients. So from there, went to residency, did an internal medicine and pediatric residency, and then right at the end of residency, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do in my fourth year, And one of my pediatric chief residents forwarded me an email saying, hey, there's this new clinical informatics fellowship that they say is happening at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Are you interested? And so I called our program director here, Tony Liberti. We had a phone call. I think I interviewed like two weeks after the phone call. And three weeks after that, we had the pseudo match that happens with the informatics fellowship. And so basically in like a six week period, I had a whole new career. So tell us a little bit, what's that fellowship like? Sure. Yeah. CHOP was one of the first ACGME accredited programs. So the fellowship is really interesting. It's really meant to give you a breadth of experience to what the world of informatics is. And it's kind of structured like a clinical fellowship in the sense that your first year is really spent doing sort of the core activities of the fellowship, just like if you were to do a picky fellowship, you might have a lot of clinical time your first year. You spend a lot of your first year in the informatics fellowship at our program, um, rotating through the various places where we have informaticists embedded within the organization. And so some of that is on like the research data side. Some of that is in building clinical decision support. Some of that is as medical directors for the inpatient electronic health record or the ED. And so you get a sort of really broad range of experience to really learn the core informatics principles around leadership and project uh, management and how to think through analytics and clinical workflows and supporting that with information technology. So all of that is really sort of the focus of your first year. 
And then I think the lovely thing about fellowship and where it's really been a great springboard to where I am now is that the second year is really geared towards developing your own focus area, right? So what is it about this world that you're interested in? Crafting some rotations to focus on that. And then that's really what got me the chance to be where I am now. So do you get to, is it hands-on? Do you get to build? Do you get to develop clinical decision support? Or is it just you're watching others doing it? How interactive and hands-on is it? Oh, no. I mean, it's very hands-on, just like a clinical fellowship. If I'm on service with one of my pediatric hospital medicine fellows, I'm generally looking to them to drive the plan and coach if I need to. And this is kind of the same where even our first month of fellowship, we were involved with an initiative to improve flu vaccination in our specialty care clinic for the patients who are high risk, like the patients with congenital heart disease. And so month one of fellowship, we were off and running, working on getting some clinical decision support built into our electronic health record. Do you have to take that board exam too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a... (laughs) (laughs) Not exempt from that with all two years of training. Not exempt from that. Yeah, Um, yeah. All right. So, well, let's ask the real question here. Has it made an impact going through fellowship? Has it prepared you for what you're doing today? Tell us first, I guess, a little bit about what you are doing today. I imagine it has something to do with COVID right now. Yeah. Go from there. (laughs) Yeah. So I sort of have three hats. So I still, like many clinical informaticists, have my clinical time. I'm spent about a quarter of my time as a general pediatric hospitalist at our hospital. And then I have two hats actually on the informatics side. One is an operational hat where I am co-chair of our clinical decision support committee and support a lot of the CDS projects on the inpatient side where I report up to our associate chief health informatics officer, Eric Shelov, in that capacity. And then I also have a research home in what we call our cognitive informatics lab in our Department of Biomedical and Health Informatics that's in the research institute for the hospital. And so I have a research focus in the same area, looking at applying human factors, human computer interaction, these other sort of what we broadly categorize as human systems engineering methods towards clinical decision support. And I have like a real focus, especially on decision support for kids who deteriorate in the hospital and how we escalate care for them. So what have you been doing? Give us an example of a clinical decision support or something that you brought live because of COVID, something you're proud of. Yeah, we've actually been doing, as I imagine you have, a lot around the COVID work, specifically around the clinical decision support. One of the really, I think, things that I've been proud of is actually really the collaborative nature of the work that we've been pursuing around this time. So we've internally built decision support, for example, to track all of the information that we're gathering at various places around exposures and whether test results and trying to synthesize all that up and making sure that that's visible for folks for situation awareness. But then also when treating patients, working with our infectious disease and especially our um, intensive care unit colleagues to help build actual decision support that makes it easy to take care of the patients. So in terms of like order sets, so very practical things, but sort of informed by a lot of the concepts that we talk about in fellowship around thinking about the balance of even like out of the box 
electronic health record vendor technology versus like, do we customize something because our workflow is very different, right? And how do you create that balance? I think that's the kind of stuff that fellowship really helped me think through. You said something interesting, which is that you have tests, that you're doing testing on these patients. So you you got a spare supply of that stuff? And, and what's your going rate here? Is it yeah. something that you're willing to shoot yeah. out the back door here? Come on now, we're yeah. here. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we've been fortunate in that our infectious disease and diagnostic lab at the hospital developed their own test. And so one of the things that I was less involved in, but our informatics group broadly was involved with standing up drive-through testing that we have that where pediatricians are referring in for testing. And then our emergency department and our inpatient hospital are able to take advantage of these in-house tests. And so because we have that luxury, we've been... our strategy for these patients has been very built uh, these days is really built around the ability to do that testing in our system where we've been test limited the clinical decisions port is frequently around who to test when to test those kinds of who's allowed to order a test even those kind of restrictions so you didn't have to get into any of that but did you have to do any of it around treatment not did you run short on i don't know hydroxychloroquine's been all the rage lately Are, are you limiting or restricting who gets to prescribe or if you, are you guys doing convalescence plasma or anything like that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think to sort of the first part of your question, I think one of the real challenges of this, it's something that we've faced with prior outbreaks as well, like Zika, where the recommendations and our capacity has changed week to week. So if you were talking to me a couple of weeks ago, we would have been talking about the decision support that we have to make sure that testing is appropriately ordered. And now we're in a very different phase because our resources have evolved. And so one of the things that I have to say, it's been amazing that our IS group has been running alongside with us. And I uh, work hand in hand with many of our Epic analysts and have been able to really respond on the fly. So we probably, I mean, I could look and tell you how many iterations we've made to the decision support around testing and ordering medications, but it's been week to week. I will say we've made at least one change. I can't think of a single week where we haven't made one change. So it really is reflective of the evolving conditions. I have to agree that how busy it has been. And a study came out uh, about hydroxychloroquine two days ago, and I'm at least touching base with the frontline provider saying, hey, do you need a change in the order sets? You still good? It's every, almost every day that we're tweaking this, changing that, and, and involved. So with the pediatric side, you are seeing less of the critically ill, but probably higher volumes. What do you think? What are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting. So I don't spend my time on the critical care side, but I have been on the inpatient side seeing patients. And it seems like we've been fortunate in the pediatric world that our volumes have been relatively lower. And in general, the acuity has also been lower. But that's not to say that we haven't had children who have gotten very ill from the disease. And so Yeah, I think, again, to your point earlier, I think the other thing that we've been trying to do is really try to share knowledge across institutions as best as we can. So there's a smaller group of us that, before any of this came about, had been pulling together a pediatric clinical decision support collaborative 
And so this involves a bunch of collaborators, Evan Orenstein at uh, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Juan Chaparro at Nationwide Children's, Phil Hagedorn at Cincinnati Children's, Emily Weber in Indiana, Eric Kirkendall and AJ Gerard at uh, Wake Forest. And so one of the first things we did was get on a call and start talking about, hey, what are you guys doing? Because we are dealing with relatively smaller numbers, right, compared to the adult world. And we wanted to make sure that things weren't falling through the cracks. And so it was great. I mean, Juan also happens to be an infectious disease physician. And so hearing how CDS has been built across these sites, swapping notes was actually just like this tremendous burden lift to be like, oh, okay, right? We're thinking about all the same things. There's maybe one little tweak that we heard about from the nationwide folks that we're going to implement and be able to move forward with that was, was a really fantastic experience. Have to agree. It's been really great hearing from other CMIOs and other informaticists. What are you working on? How's it going? What's working well? I've been using the AMDIS listserv as yeah. a, a Bible. <laughs> it's, yeah. been, it's been really good. So it is, it's reassuring that because none of us have been through an epidemic like this, I'm assuming. And uh, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's good to hear what your colleagues are up to, knowing that we're all on the right track here. Yeah. So I'm going to jump tr- tracks on you a little bit. I understand that you do have a knack for usability. I want to learn a little bit more about how you got into this and how it makes a difference in informatics. Yeah, I suppose I should say I'm maybe more the person with the interest in usability and the people with really the knack for it are the human computer interaction and the human factors folks. So we have a couple of people that work in my lab with the human computer interaction background and then we have within our Center for Healthcare Quality and Analytics at the hospital on the operational side, a whole human factors program. And so those are really the experts, right? I'm really here as the person who's advocating for the employment of their methodological expertise in in deploying the technology. And so, and so that's that's really where I've been focused. So how does it help? Yeah, I think there's a pretty robust literature around usability and how that relates to health information technology, right? We know that usable technologies are ones that are more likely to be used, right, to have adoption. So people that are trying to get technology implemented and used, that's an important thing. But also, for example, the work that the folks at the MedStar National Center for Human Factors have been leading has shown that usability issues are associated with safety issues and uh, potential harm to our patients. And there's been a lot of focus these days on provider burden from electronic health records. And one of the key sort of themes that comes up over and over is how much usability issues like being annoyed by interruptions in the electronic health record can contribute to that feeling of provider burden. And so I think usability is something that's something that has sort of lots of downstream impacts when it comes to health information technology and is important for an organization to have a focus on. So when you're designing a clinical decision support, let's talk about an epic land here. That's a BPA, Mm -hmm. a best practice alert. Mm -hmm. How do you use usability? What are you thinking about as you're designing that BPA? Yeah. So if you think about usability, right, the, the whole point of it conceptually is It's meant to help you accomplish something efficiently and correctly and in a way that's pleasing to the person that's using it, right? That they're satisfied with the process of using the tool. 
And so the first part of it is honestly just defining what the work is, right? And so I think a lot of times, you I can't imagine that you've not experienced this, Mark, that somebody says, hey, I have a problem, I need a BPA built for this, when really the first question to ask is, what's the work and is the BPA the right tool to, to use at all, right? Because if the process that is needed is actually something that can be supported upstream instead of having somebody make an error and then get an alert that says, hey, you screwed up, go back and fix it, then that's actually the better process, right? And then the alert might just be there just to catch the people who slipped through the cracks. So I think that's sort of like one key idea is to think about defining what it is that the people who are doing the work actually need and then building your technology after that rather than starting with the solution. Not only do they come asking for an alert to be put in the system, but they want to usually insert like this tome, this yeah. this sixteen-page <laughs> article yeah. that they want to have in there of just straight text. Yep. And then down at the bottom is maybe a link to something that would actually be really useful. <laughs> um, so you have to yeah. scroll down to get that. So and of course utilize... the bright red color with it too, right? Yes, so. yes, of course. <laughs> uh, so you use your usability skills, it sounds like, then to make the BPAs recognizable, I guess, and that you can quickly interact with them, understand what it is, and not torture your end users with a cognitive burden. Do you think yeah. about cognitive burden as you're doing this? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's another layer to, there's sort of one of the fundamental principles of clinical informatics, right, are the sort of five rights of clinical decision support about getting the right information to the right person in the right format through the right channel at the right time. And I think that's a great foundation, but usability builds on that, right? So if you sort of think about what people are supposed to do with that information. Sometimes it's make a choice between a few different options. Sometimes it's actually like we were talking about with all the COVID test results and the travel screening, although that's less of a focus these days compared to like exposure screening, right? You need to synthesize all that up to just get some situation awareness, right? To figure out what's going on with the patient. And so all of that to say, I think, the goal with all this stuff is to help think about what is it that people actually have to do. And so if the BPA is about making a choice, then we help you sort of see that choice in the BPA. And maybe one of the choices is that this is actually inappropriate. And so you build the acknowledgement reasons for that so that people can appropriately interact with the tool the way that they would think about it, right? Do you actually measure that feedback that you get from those acknowledgement reasons? Do you utilize that data to then go back and reassess the BPA? Yeah, we've been doing that on a number of our improvement efforts. So the specific one that comes to mind is around the prevention of DVTs, deep vein thromboses, which is an interesting one for a pediatrician, right? Because in the adult world, I feel like you all probably just think about it by default. Of course, like that's the thing, that's part of the standard process as soon as you walk in the hospital. But in the pediatric world, most kids are pretty low risk, right? It's really the adolescent population that's at uh, higher risk for developing them. And so because it's not a routine practice, it's actually a more challenging thing to think about. And so we have actually, like I was talking about, actually a range of decision support that we've built for it. It starts with a clinical pathway that our domain experts in the area put together. 
And then based on that pathway, we've put together an order set that helps you get it right the first time. And then if over the course of the hospitalization, let's say their mobility decreases or something about their assessment puts them at higher risk, then that triggers an alert to say, hey, something about this patient's new. And the way we structure it, right, we don't have a single BPA. We have multiple BPAs based on the patient's risk. So if they're at moderate risk and they just need compression devices, there's a BPA that shows up and it just tells you to do that. And that's great because you can just order it right there as opposed to some of the, if you're high risk and you need to think about anticoagulation, then that's a separate BPA that tells you to do more than that, right? So, and then to your question, then we look at the acknowledgement reasons and go back and say, when people are saying that this was contraindicated, is that actually true? Was there a true contraindication? So again, we have harm prevention folks who are focused on this area, and they actually manually audit charts, about 20 charts a month. And wherever there's a mismatch where they say, hey, this kid was actually high risk, but we assess them as moderate risk or something like that, then we can see that and see what the users did every step of the way through, right? Did they screen appropriately? Did they respond appropriately to the alert when they got there? And we can start seeing where things break down in the process and really target our interventions that way. You said so many things in that that I loved. I'll start with using order sets, driving people to the right choices the first time. That's great concepts there that as CMIOs we should be doing. And then the clinical decision support that really seemed that it was tailored for the right person at the right time, that you, whether you're getting the pharmacologic uh, BPA versus the, uh, the pneumatic compression stocking one, that all, and then reviewing, actually taking a look at how the BPA is behaving and modifying and reacting to that. That requires resources, which I know many of my colleagues don't have, and they don't have the opportunity to sit down and review all their BPAs. But great, I mean, that's great stuff that you're doing there. Yeah. So, mm-hmm, go ahead. The one thing I'll chime in to say is I think when it comes to that evaluation piece, I think there is certainly the more resource-intensive, rigorous version of what we're just talking about. But when it comes to your users, just starting by talking to them with really sort of informal methods can really get you a long way. So one of the ways that we used the data around the alert was actually there was an existing version of the alert that we were not where instead of two separate alerts for moderate risk and high risk, we had a single alert and we found that people were taking the inappropriate action after it. And we looked at the alert and we said, who's actually seeing it and responding to it, right? And if it probably wouldn't surprise you that it was mostly residents. But when it comes to QI projects, which resident has the time to actually sit there and come to a QI meeting once every two weeks to actually work on some project, right? They're just too busy. And so what we did was just go walk around the resident workrooms. I spent, honestly, probably under an hour, talked to nine residents, showed them essentially a screenshot of the alert and said, hey, look at this thing. When you see this thing, what do you do and why, right? And most of them told me, honestly, most of the time I just pick sequential compression devices because I don't really know how to do that risk assessment. And the idea of anticoagulation makes me nervous. I know that in the adult side, maybe they do it more, but we don't really do that on the pediatric side. And so that's just what I do. And so, right, it was like really valuable insight and it took very little time to actually get it. And they also pointed out 
design elements that we had missed. Like there were certain types of anticoagulants that the patient might already be on, but the alert was still showing up like in our cardiac kids. And so we got just a ton of valuable feedback that we were able to implement changes around with under an hour of work. That is gold. I loved everything you just said. So CMIOs don't get any formal training in usability or design. Any resources that you could suggest for us if we want to get a little more knowledge on that topic? Yeah, probably the best starting place, I would guess, is the onhealthit.gov, the Office of the National Coordinator site. One of their topics is around usability and provider burden. And then they link to a bunch of other resources like the HIMSS usability maturity model work that really was at the beginning of the decade that that work was done. And that can help folks in leadership roles like CMIOs sort of assess where they are in the usability journey, right? Is this still an organization that's just starting to prioritize their users and needs to build some more consensus around that? Or is it at a stage where it can have a dedicated usability team that maybe gets assigned to high priority projects? Or is it like actually at a point where this can be something that's strategically incorporated into their health IT planning overall? So I would say, yeah, maybe starting with that healthit.gov has that site to take a look at. Great, great resource there. All right, so just want to get back to you for a second here. What do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, what, what are you going to do for, for a living? Is this, is this it? What's your dream position uh, in life? Yeah, honestly, I kind of have it. Uh, yeah, I. it's not where I was uh, expecting to be five years after fellowship, but I guess that's the joy of working in a relatively young field is that if I sort of think about big picture, I sort of look at myself as someone that's ideally doing translational work, right? So think doing some work that's at the cutting edge on the research and innovation side, some, still get a chance to do some collaborative research with Mark, who you had on your podcast a while back. Mm. And so that's fantastic. And then get to focus on then taking that research and applying it in a really broad way in my role focused on clinical decision support so that there's both that sort of depth that I get from the research side, but then that chance to have an impact from the operational side. So yeah, it's been great. I'm curious about the market for CMIOs in, in the pediatric specific area. It would seem to me it's really niche. There's First of all, there's not a ton of CMIOs out there, but there's probably even significantly less pediatric focused CMIOs. You're interesting because you've got the, both the med peds training. Do you feel that the the peds market is constraining or could you drop into a CMIO role anywhere in the country in any hospital and just roll with it? Or what do you think? Uh, it's interesting. I, I will say on the clinical side, it's been five years since I've treated an adult who did not have some sort of congenital uh, or childhood disease. And so I certainly would not feel comfortable practicing clinically as an adult at the moment, or with adult patients, I should say. Uh, I think the, in terms of understanding the processes and what it is, again, sort of going back to what we we're chatting about when we first started this off, right, around what is it that sort of a clinical informatics fellowship prepares you for, and what is it that CMIOs spend their time doing, right? I think the ideas around how do you design and improve healthcare technology so that it supports clinical work. 
How do you create a strategy around analytics so that it informs a continuously improving care delivery system? I think those are all things that are broadly applicable, and certainly folks could easily probably make the jump between institutions, but certainly would have to do the legwork of learning the clinical work, not for patient care, but even from the informatics perspective. I agree. As internal medicine trained, if someone put a kid in front of me, I would turn and run. I have no, (laughs) no idea. And the same thing I feel with some of the informatics work that we do. We're a community hospital. We have kids that come in. We're, We're not a specialty hospital like you guys are. I am so thankful that I've got a pediatric informaticist on there because someone asked me about the dose of this or is this the right treatment? I don't have a clue, actually. <laughs> yeah. Adults, I'm pretty good. But nevertheless, the principles are the same. You're right. And so I, I do see that if you are a pediatric informaticist, that you can make the jump. It's just going to be more difficult if all you do all day long is nothing but kids, but if you're in a setting where you do get exposure to adult informatics, then you could probably have more opportunities out there being able to make the jump to an adult side if if you have that knowledge that's solid enough. Yeah, absolutely. And and what's great about our fellowship is that we do have relationships with the adult programs at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. And so there's no fellowship there, but for folks with interest in adult medicine, they have the opportunity to spend their time doing rotations with the innovation groups. I think Mark did a rotation with the CMIO there. And so you can get sort of a nice training experience if you're interested in that sort of broader portfolio once you're done with fellowship. So I think there are definitely places where you could get that kind of training and be set up for something like that. Naveen, this has been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate your time in the middle of a COVID outbreak and just taking a half hour to talk to us today. If people want to reach out to you, is LinkedIn a good way to reach you? How can they touch base. Yeah, LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm probably spending more time tweeting than anything else. So yeah. Awesome. Thank you again. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn if you want to get in touch to send me ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode. (music) 